this week on the Managing Remote Teams podcast. We do have that anti-pattern of what you called uh, unreasonable expectations. So the idea that the capacity of an organization changes because we are remote and the expectations don't necessarily adjust because they can't. We don't have that data. We need to learn that over time, obviously. But how do we deal with that? Because we know that remote setting affects our capacity and also affects our ability to contribute because we are busy at home. There's all kinds of other demands that we didn't have at the office. There's many reasons why what used to be a reasonable expectation no longer is when the team is remote. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. This is Luke Shermer of the Managing Remote Teams podcast, and today we have a mic flip episode. So, in fact, this was originally aired as a episode of the Scrum Master Toolbox podcast, where I had a wonderful discussion with Vasco Duarte, and uh, we riffed on a number of topics related to Scrum and remote together, and as it was quite popular as a show on social media. I asked Vasco if he'd be interested in sharing this also with my audience, and he graciously agreed. So I will hand things over to Vasco. Hi, I'm your host, Vasco Duarte. Welcome to the Scrum Master Toolbox podcast, where we share tips and tricks from Scrum Masters around the world. Every day, we bring you inspiring answers to important questions that all Scrum Masters face day after day. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special bonus episode. And uh, today we have with us Luke Shermer. Hi, Luke. Welcome to the show. Hi, Vasco. So we were in prep talking with Luke about how he is the first Luke as a guest here on the podcast, even though Luke is our avatar, our prototype Scrum Master who's out there learning to be a, a better Scrum Master. So Luke, it's a pleasure to have you here. First real Luke we have on the podcast. <laughs> so Luke is the host of the Align Remotely podcast. Luke has managed or participated in fully remote teams for a decade, and he's led programs of very widely distributed teams. Over the last nine years, he's also led teams building software, running marketing and sales, and launched a best-selling book remotely, in many cases with people he had never met or spoke to in person before. Uh, look, that was a, a short intro. I want to dive straight into the topics of the podcast. I, I think, uh, first of all, this is a podcast, so the people listening to us are probably interested in podcast-style content. And uh, you host a podcast about aligning teams that work remotely, which is something that our Scrum Master friends and Luke, the Scrum Master out there, is also interested in. So before we dive into all the wisdom and tools that you have to share Tell us, what were the biggest problems you saw in your own experience and, of course, also from your guests, remote teams face when it comes to aligning remotely? 
Sure. I've coached or worked with scrum teams or multiple scrum teams, I think at the peak around 27 people. And even though the majority of my time was spent divided between the teams and the stakeholders, I'd say most of the stress was spent aligning the stakeholders. And I think in my immediate experience, Scrum's great at optimizing how individual teams work. But I think depending on the context those teams operate in, Scrum could end up just being a local optimization. And often the the quote-unquote action uh, lies between or even above the Scrum teams. The velocity and the quality of the managerial decisions that happen around the Scrum teams, they're the context and the system in the same way that in, in the sense that Deming says that Deming, the statistician, said that 94% of the variation of the output of a group is in the system and only 6% is individual variation, which is related to the employees. Obviously, he was talking about factories in that context, but I, I think the rough breakdown also applies to us. And speaking of that, if alignment doesn't exist, then you start creating lots and lots of organizational bottlenecks which end up hijacking teams. And uh, yeah, and I've managed to figure this out simply because I have gone through organizational backlogs of improvements that needed to happen and help a good quality team go from taking two weeks to, to finish a single story down to 37 hours uh, as a mean completion time. So when we talk about this, the fact that there are stakeholder alignment issues, of course, we talk about teams all the time as scrum masters, that's where our focus usually is. But we also understand and, and very much see it every day that when stakeholders are not aligned, then that directly impacts the teams. And you've interviewed quite a few guests already on the podcast. What do they share about why it is so easy for stakeholders teams, and of course, also stakeholders, to lose alignment when they are remote? So alignment itself, it's a funny topic because even before the pandemic, the alignment usually within one vertical, so from the team going up, was usually reasonably high and most, most let's say, middle managers felt comfortable with it. But it was in between departments uh, where things would break down. And that's being a scrum master and being across various teams, I, I would very much see that. Now with the pandemic, with everyone being remote, it's even harder because you don't really have access to people. And I think the the thing that creates the context for all of these teams is, is the speed and the quality of the decisions that are made by this layer above the teams. So going to how Amazon thinks about things, famously, this kind of decision velocity. So not velocity in the typical Scrum sense, but the speed at which good decisions are made, basically. And and this also does affect how well the teams themselves do. Decision makers themselves are also distributed, particularly when you're, when you're working in a global context. And in addition just to the actual making of the decision, even something as simple and practical as organizing meetings, getting times everyone's available, reconciling time zones, all of this ends up slowing down the team too, if a decision needs to be made. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I'm sure that the, the guests have shared many anti-patterns. I, I can only imagine the problems that emerge from very busy, typically high-level stakeholders having to come into meetings to align teams across departments. Sometimes you have to get multiple stakeholders to be at the same time in the same meeting with multiple teams that are 
kind of waiting on their their decisions. And uh, of course, that can lead to misalignment, loss of alignment. What are the anti-patterns that you have seen emerging from this difficulty that is quite understandable, that is much harder to get everybody in the same meeting at the same time when we are so busy and, and everybody's already having Zoom fatigue as well. So <laughs> what are the anti-patterns that you see emerge when this alignment starts to disappear? Yeah, absolutely. Zoom fatigue started to be a topic probably <laughs> roughly in, in June on the podcast. So it's already definitely there. I think the main kind of at a most practical level, the main thing is that you have a lot of effort spent on things which aren't needed or which aren't aligned with a kind of larger strategy. So it's the old kind of efficiency versus effectiveness breakdown. And basically, it's pointless to be super efficient at something that doesn't need to be done at all. <laughs> so that's at the most practical level. I think when you do have misalignment between various stakeholders also, particularly when you have multiple, let's say, managers managing a team, it's very difficult to hold uh, people accountable if there is an expectation of kind of a hierarchy because at that point in addition to holding people accountable you need to align to know what the outcomes are in order to be able to then delegate it properly so it just gets very messy and particularly if each stakeholder argues for their own little pet outcome <laughs> which will happen by default especially if they have lost alignment between departments of course Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And ultimately, the financial aspect of this is that people end up leaving. They don't feel appreciated. They don't feel fulfilled. And literally, this is a major cost for the company, too. So it's not just the people aspect of it. It's everything from time to find someone new, recruiting them, onboarding them. That could take months, depending on exactly what it what And it, also what it is much harder when remote, obviously. And harder when remote, exactly. And it disrupts the team dynamic too. So one of the things that that I think is super important is that a lot of people talk about productivity in the sense of individual productivity when remote, but actually it's the team dynamic that's most important. And, and if you disrupt the team dynamic by someone leaving, then yeah, that also can end up having repercussions. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, as Scrum Masters, we might even be seeing this already in front of us happening all the time. So we, we need to take action. If nothing else, we need to raise the topic and, and work with others to handle it. But in your experience and also from the work that you have done, like what can we as Scrum Masters who are, in fact, informal leaders within the organization, what can we do to help the this layer that needs to be aligned as well as the team to slowly start to build the practices that uh, ensure that alignment is always there? Typically, the lack of alignment comes from the creation of silos. And I think the, the best way to help start counteracting that is to try to think very deliberately about who meets with whom when and try to create meetings with people from different areas. And then that helps close the gap. These are basically doing things like explicitly creating sense-making meetings where uh, you can use formats like a fishbowl or something like that just for people to explore different perspectives or just as part of your regular your regular routines, your regular, let's say, workflow, trying to get as many people as you can onto your onto your sprint reviews, try to make it as wide and inclusive as possible so that so that people are aware of what you're doing, but also so that People within your team, not necessarily you yourself, but let's say other people within the team are 
also aware of what's going on in other teams. And that helps a lot in terms of... You, you talk about uh, these sense-making meetings. You gave the fishbowl as, as an example. Let's break that down for our friends, Scrum Masters out there. What do you mean by sense-making? And how do you know that it is happening, that it is succeeding? So ultimately with sense-making, it's not so much about, let's say analysis and decision-making. It's more about opening up perspectives, creating new relationships, creating new ways of thinking, essentially. There's a lot of ways you can do that. So for example, like you have guilds at Spotify where you have people sharing, sharing, for example, test practices across teams or so basically getting people getting people to meet others across the company, either within the same function or people doing the same thing and essentially trying to break down these silos as much as you possibly can. And the way that that's happening is that when, as you're working on something, everyone on the team knows what everyone else on, on in the company is doing. And it's a lot easier to then go and ask for help, who to ask, what to ask. There isn't this kind of awkward sense of needing to reach out to some guy in Japan. (laughs) So it it sounds to me that those are also meetings that are designed to link people together with specific starting point. For example, something to do with uh, next month's product releases or whatever. But that the, the goal is not only to share information, but to create these personal networks that ultimately will help people solve problems by themselves independently when they merge in the future. Is that how you see it? Yes, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it, an easy one, is also to have everyone participate together in discussions about new things that can be done in the company, both in terms of improving, possibly in terms of ideas for strategy, brown bag meetings for someone to share, something that they learn with a larger group. So basically breaking the typical interaction pattern that's there to then help and open open people up uh, both to new information and to new people, new perspectives. And I think that's super important. Now, I think this is a great idea. Of course, the first objection that comes to mind is we already have so many meetings. We've talked about Zoom <laughs> fatigue already. So I, I've also seen in companies a, a large inflation of 30 and 60-minute meetings, which, of course, don't necessarily help with communication, but get everybody mad and, and, and tired of meetings. So w- what can we learn from your research about how to reduce meetings, but at the same time increase alignment for our teams? Yes, absolutely. This is definitely an area where I did a lot of experimentation through the years. And so, for example, I had one team that was quite vocal Uh, In fact, one or two people on a larger team who were quite vocal about it. So what we tried was just completely canceling everything for two weeks and seeing what happens. And as a result, a few of the other people were like, wait, we want, we we actually want the stand up. (laughs) We want to check in and do things. So it, on on one hand, Scrum is very effective in terms of getting internal alignment in a certain format. At the same time, I think ultimately when we're thinking about the business goals, all of these interactions had a certain point, and I think taking them away completely helped unearth why it was that we needed it for many of the people. So it wasn't something that was being imposed on them. It was something where most of the team members felt they needed it. And then we tried canceling it. We tried Slack-based stand-ups. We tried all kinds of combinations of Slack and in-person 
All of these are, I think, useful ways of experimenting potentially in terms of figuring out what the right flow is. And I think the optimal tip usually isn't not to have any meetings simply because you, you okay, so you always have this trade-off between time that you need to go and make and create stuff and time to go and decide stuff like what needs to be made in the first place. And if you, and that's one of the one of the important balances, I think. So if you're only going and doing stuff, you might end up creating things which you don't need. Whereas if you if you have some time spent on deliberating exactly what to build and how to build it, and not necessarily in a huge wide forum, then you get that a better balance can emerge in terms of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and finding that balance is, of course, not that simple or easy. And what I hear from your experience experimenting with canceling meetings is that it also helped you to figure out from feedback, from concrete individual feedback, what meetings might actually be critical for the teams to continue to deliver. Yes, exactly. Exactly. There is a legitimate argument that if, if people are constantly in meetings, then they can't actually do any work. So <laughs> that's the that was the starting point. So it's, yeah, absolutely. It's very much about getting the right balance. And I think it is context specific. It depends on the team. It depends on what you're building. It depends on the company context, uh, a, a number of factors, I think. But, and uh, yeah. also, one of the things that comes to mind, like for us as Scrum Masters, then this experiment also suggests, first of all, we need to take action. If we want to discover what is necessary and what is superfluous, we need to actually check it out. We, we can't just uh, ideate uh, or hypothesize. We, we actually need to change something. Scrum already gives us a pretty good framework, right, with the <clears throat> main events that, that it recommends during uh, a sprint, for example. But there's a lot of other meetings in companies, and we need to take that into account. But it, it sounds to me that one very practical way in which Scrum Masters can help to turn down the amount of meetings, yet d not reducing alignment, would be to specifically work on, for example, talking to teams and deciding, okay, this sprint, what meetings are we going to cancel? And then at the end of the sprint, have a retrospective about, okay, so what was the impact? Was there something that we totally lost and we definitely need that back? Or is what we lost something we can get other ways or, or even we find out we don't actually need that at all like that that's how i read that story of your experiment with meetings but if you would have to break that down into a concrete advice for scrum masters what would that be luke i would say to go and speak with your team and ask them what they think is going to work best for them in terms of this and use that as a starting point and absolutely use the retrospectives to, to readjust, even if you need to talk during the standups that you do have, if you do cancel things. And yeah, ultimately, Scrum is a very robust approach. And as much as we tried moving away from it, in the end, we ended up pretty much back to where we started in terms of needing the short check-ins every day and the regular cadence of the planning and the sprint review and the retro. And uh, yeah, I think it it was better when it actually was something this team themselves felt and it wasn't something which was being imposed. Not that I was imposing on them, I, I don't think, but it just I think it just felt as something that was there as opposed to actually thinking about, okay, so what actually is the best way for 
us to get the most done. Absolutely. So, well, one of the things that you said, actually, it's a great tip as well. Like sometimes when we are remote, it's very easy to miss and to lose the cadence. And for example, if you stop having retrospectives, just because you have to call every one of those separately and you have to struggle with the schedule and all the time find what time fits best for everybody involved, then you're going to lose the cadence. And, and that's actually a very important tip that if for some reason you have lost the cadence, it's time to schedule those cadence setting meetings like the sprint planning and the retrospective as an example up on the calendar for the foreseeable future because that will make sure that the cadence does does happen and maybe you want to experiment with those meetings but at least having the cadence is a very important tip now uh, another question i wanted to ask luke is that of course now that we are remote and in, in your case it's nothing new but for many of us it is a relatively new thing about a year old at the time of this recording we we do have that anti-pattern of what you called uh, unreasonable expectations. So the idea that the capacity of an organization changes because we are remote and the expectations don't necessarily adjust because they can't. We don't have that data. We need to learn that over time, obviously. But how do we deal with that? Because we know that remote setting affects our capacity and also affects our ability to contribute because we are busy at home. There's all kinds of other demands that we didn't have at the office. There's many reasons why what used to be a reasonable expectation no longer is when the team is remote. Yeah, so I think I think one of my favorite tools in this context is something called tact time in terms of figuring out how to articulate stakeholder expectations in a way that is relatively actionable, basically. When I first discovered this, what happened was that I was with a team who was expected to deliver a relatively large backlog within, let's say, the span of, I think, about five months it was at the time. We had an idea of the total number of stories we could play around with with the story point estimation or not. I know you're the no estimation guy, so I need to watch my what I say here. But <laughs> this is a judgment-free zone, right? You you can talk about your experience. That's what we want here. Ultimately, yeah. So ultimately, what tax time was to take the overall span of time that that we were told that we were expected and the scope and figured out the average amount of time needed for each item. In fact, I think we did it with story points, but you could just as well do it with a small number with tasks, let's say, that were roughly the same size. And this pace was a numerical expression of what the overall demand was. And then we could compare that to how fast we were going. And if those two were completely off, we, we would know right away that, okay, there's a serious capacity mismatch one way or the other, and you can do something with it. What was the actual metric you used to measure that pace, as you called it? It was velocity, but in a slightly articulated in a slightly different way. So the average amount of time it was taking for us to complete a story point. So this was Again, maybe a little a little abstract. I, I would say over-engineered because you could just ask what's the average amount of time it takes to complete a story. And you would typically get that from any tool that you use to manage a delivery, any work management tool or issue tracking system like uh, Jira or these days even Trello has APIs to get that. But I, I guess you used StoryPoint because you wanted to take into account the understanding of size, 
but what you were actually measuring was basically how much in terms of story points in your case can we deliver in a, a time frame like a sprint, correct? Based on data rather than estimates. Yeah, so we were looking at sprint outcomes, and yeah, in, in this case, we were just using story points because we had gone, we, we'd basically gone through the effort of estimating it out in story points. So we already had those numbers anyway. We didn't do it for the purpose of this. <laughs> if I was, if I just wanted a quick gut check, up, yeah, absolutely, I think just numbers would be would be absolutely fine of the stories. So what happened when you inevitably discovered that the expectations of story points delivered per sprint was much higher than what was actually being delivered. As soon as I articulated it that way, that the, the, the basically the demand or the expectation was, was much higher, then that made it a lot easier to escalate it because then it was something that was relatively objective, but reformulated in a way that you could, you could look at that moment so that we knew that assuming nothing else changes, these expectations are likely not to be met. And it was good that I told them right away and not, let's say, much closer to the, the date when they expected everything to be done, more or less. And I think that was quite helpful in the discussion that it's like, okay, I, I'm being proactive here. <laughs> I'm letting you know the, the way things look right now, either we need to adjust our scope or we need to do something with the team size or there is an issue here. And this is, in fact, the gap that we have based on what you're expecting from the team versus what's actually happening. And that made it, let's say, objective enough that you could then negotiate or figure out what the right approach is in terms of addressing that. And it was something we could then also continue to monitor over time. So it wasn't just that at that moment. We knew what this tack time was and we, could, and we knew what our velocity was or was relatively easy to figure out and... We're using Jira. I think initially I was still doing some more kind of Excel exports and figuring stuff out. Eventually I figured out how to do it in Jira. But most of this stuff isn't complicated arithmetic level stuff. (laughs) It's just getting those aligned enough that everyone's comfortable that in fact we are making progress and the expectations are reasonable of the team based on what's actually happening such as a pandemic or not. This was actually before a pandemic. But. Of course, the, that particular technique you just shared with us can be utilized anytime. Like we don't need for a pandemic to hit, to start using the data we already have. And even data like story points delivered per sprint is available for many tool we might be using already to capture the work that we need to do. So it, it sounds like a great idea. We're about to end, Luke, but I would like to ask you still, as Scrum Masters, We need to constantly work on aligning our teams and aligning the stakeholders that through their decision-making velocity, as you mentioned, affect the performance of our teams. Are there some other tips, some ideas that we need to take into account in order to help our teams succeed now that we are, and at least for the foreseeable future in most of the world, still remote? So my my favorite kind of small technique that I think is is usable in many contexts is the fist to five technique. So essentially, you do need everyone on a camera, but essentially you can use this either for checking if everyone understands or and or if everyone agrees when you're discussing something. You, you say that you want, want, want to do a fist to five, and then essentially what people are indicating is if 
if by by showing their number of fingers, they show how much they understand or agree with what it is that's being discussed. So five being at the top end, yes, I absolutely love it. Fist being no, absolutely horrible. <laughs> There's no way uh, you can drag me into this or. I'm completely lost. I don't understand. And it's nice because, you know, there's no special technology. It removes uh, all the biases like you have in estimation, story point estimation, where, you know, people just at the same time show where they are. And then based on that, you can use that as data to then further steer the discussion in whatever direction it is that you that you feel is appropriate. So Yeah, absolutely. Great tool also to measure misalignment and have a discussion on that. That's yeah. Awesome. Uh, and then there, I think, similar to estimation practices, if, if you are misaligned, then a good way to, to check in on that is to ask the person who is very the most against it and the most for it to re-argue their case, and then you vote again until you converge to a useful place. And in fact, it isn't so much about the number or the estimate or the... It's, it's more about this, this discussion and making it uh, high quality and relevant for everyone involved. And I think it's, it's a super useful way to do that. Absolutely. Luke, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. We're almost at the end, but before we do go, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Sure. So I'm at alignremotely.com and I'm on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn also with Align Remotely. So feel free to say hi and drop me a line. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you guys want to know more, check out the podcast. Uh, it has also great interviews about how we can help our remote team succeed. Awesome. Look, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your generosity with your time and your knowledge. Thanks, Vasco. It's been a lot of fun. We really hope you liked our show. And if you did, why not rate this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes? Share this podcast and let other Scrum Masters know about this valuable resource for their work. Remember that sharing is caring. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Vasco. I certainly did. And if you are into Scrum and related agile techniques, definitely check out his podcast. It's quite a resource, if I do say so myself. So we are still due to have an episode on flowcharts. <laughs> I recently realized that we are just about to hit episode 50 on the podcast, and I figured that that might be better to do as a somewhat of a retrospective, pull out a few clips of highlights since the beginning of the podcast and um, also as a refresher for some of the fun and interesting things from the past and useful. So tune in next time. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show. 